patristic and resourcement contributions to renewed theology of grace in nature. This is how I lately rephrase the title of my lecture here. It's, I assure you, it's going to be more or less the same, but it's more precise to what I'm now going to expose. How can we understand and classify human outreach towards God systematically? And how can we determine the conditions of its possibility? Hardly any other theological topic knows such a complex and jagged history as the question of the relationship between nature and grace. To measure its scope, a yardstick can hardly be long enough for this question hangs on all the arcs of tension that shape theology from the ground up, such as the relationship between reason and faith, the relation between world history and biblical salvation history, state and church, religions and revelation. At the end, the very relationship between philosophy and theology. One can observe how the question of the correct evaluation of the relationship between nature and grace has, in the present context of an intensified search for clues to determine the identity of the individual or of entire groups and societies, expanded into a contest over who is entitled to interp interpretive sovereignty over Catholic theology, pulled back and forth between the commitment to tradition or to aggiornamento, between centuries of scholastic thought and a theology principally guided by the documents of the Second Vatican Council, and not infrequently pulled between an allegedly Thomistic or patristic approach. Assuming here a consensual caution against supposed new additions of a Stockwerk theology, the theology of divisions of various levels within theology, this contribution wants to show by means of some reflections on the concept of nature, how patristic inspired thinking in reality defies the often sweepingly raised claim to be identified as the historical alley of the ressourcement theology of the 20th century. And moreover, how patristic thinking is capable of displaying a fair degree of de-escalation capacities in this debate. As it is well known, the term resourcement refers us to directly to those protagonists who, in the middle of the 20th century, catapulted precisely the question of the relationship between grace and human nature out of the slumber of school theology into the existential center of Catholic thought. Henri de Lubac, and Karl Rahner. Again, especially with the name Henri de Lubac, one associates the attempt to redefine the relationship between nature and grace in relation to those two terms themselves. In Surnaturel of um, 1946, Henri de Lubac had understood human longing for knowledge of God as an indispensable characteristic of human spirituality, that is a longing inherent in the nature of human beings themselves, which connects them in their nature with a goal reaching beyond their own nature. With these statements, the French Jesuit had abandoned two closely interwoven core ideas of neo-scholastic anthropology, 
Firstly, the principle of natura pura, resting in God's freedom and in a certain autonomy of man, that is the conception of man's creation, which is to be considered as integral, even without God's gracious intervention in view of participation in eternal life. Secondly, and once again closely connected to the former, the recognition in natura pura of human purposefulness beside or under, if you wish, the finality of the beatific encounter with God, which corresponds this finality to the realization of human natural possibilities and abilities. Now in my presentation, I would like to show how Christological and anthropological reflections in the patristic era, especially in the thought of Maximus the Confessor, leave somewhat more room for human agency and human nature in relation to God's grace than the Delubachian approach insinuates even if the concept of nature itself was not defined in patristic times, then, of course, as it will be in scholasticism or neo-scholasticism, in the attempt to mark its proper boundaries with God's grace. First line of thought. Natura in the light of Chalcedonian Christology. In the New Testament, human purpose is, an, is undoubtedly understood to be founded in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is Alpha and Omega, confer um, Acts 1, 8 or 21. The origin and above all the goal of creation in which human beings are introduced and which gives meaning to the entire universe. A closer examination of the New Testament references concerning human finality help us to become aware of a certain differentiation. On the one hand, a Christological constituted purposiveness existing in the creation is state, all things are created through him and for him. Quotation ended, Colossians 1.16. Ephesians 1.10. God has decided to unite all things in Christ, all that is all things both in heaven and on earth, end of quotation. On the other hand, we find in the created world a process towards the realization of the Christological purpose. I quote, through him, the whole structure is held together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Through him, you are also built up in the spirit into a dwelling place of God, end of quotation of from Ephesians 2, 20 to 22. Finally, in last scripture quotation, he, Christ, is the head. Through him, the whole body is joined together and strengthened in every joint. Ephesians 4, 15b to 16. This somewhat subtle differentiation between a purpose of creatureliness present in creation from its beginning on the one hand, and on the other, the eschatological target setting inherent to created being that is still to come to its fulfillment by grace allows for a development that leads to the Christo-ontological statements of the Council of Chalcedon in 451. The, subsist the subsisting of both natures, divine and human, in the one hypostasis of Jesus Christ includes in relation to their origin, a non-identity 
between the eternal being of the divine nature, co-eternal with the Father, and an existential beginning of the human nature derived from its union with the divine nature. Within the synthesis of the council, only at first glance symmetrically arranged, this differentiation is maintained by an asymmetrically constructed sentence melody, which clearly drags out the second part of the sentence compared to the first. According to divinity, he was begotten of the Father before the ages. According to humanity, he was born of Mary, the virgin and bearer of God in the last days for us and for our salvation. In this way, the council underlines the identity of the hypostasis of Jesus Christ with the eternal logos and the divine nature of the eternal logos, that is, with the divine being begotten before all times by the Father. Obviously, also before his incarnation, which at the moment of the Annunciation to the Virgin united itself with a human nature. The human nature of Jesus Christ, on the other hand, never existed by itself. This difference concerning human nature as such, between the unique situation of the human nature of the incarnate Logos and the situation of the created existence of all other human natures striving towards union with God, touches the moment of origin of each of their respective subsistences. The singular case of Jesus Christ does not know an independent human nature subsisting from itself alone, or in other words, there is not such a thing like a hypostatic human nature in Christ. The situation is different in the case of divine grace that God bestows on man. This grace is given to a being that in its origin lies in being created, that is, in a subsistence as human nature. Maximus Confessor, two centuries later, has elaborated even more pointedly this meaning of the Chalcedonian Christology with regard to the uniqueness of Jesus Christ in relation to human nature. All human beings who share human nature with Christ are, in the language of the confessor, natural syntheses. For they are, for instances, natural as a natural synthesis of soul and body that indeed characterizes all human beings. Natural syntheses, however, in contrast to the hypostatic synthesis of Christ, do not signify a radical surpassing of human nature in the origin of itself. Natural syntheses are imminently proper to themselves. In other words, Jesus Christ is the only individual in this cosmos who is only a hypostatic synthesis, not a natural synthesis. For the basis of the synthetic subsistence of Jesus Christ is divine freedom and divine love alone generated by the Father and shared with the Father and the Holy Spirit. On the other hand, and at the same time, Maximus' remark makes this clear, human nature in its condition as being created, that is not to be confused with the situation of the hypostatic union of Jesus Christ, is to be understood, however, as inherently dynamically synthesizing insofar as this human nature is in itself already a living human union of polarities. In other words, again, human natural syntheses being divinized are becoming hypostatic syntheses as well.
In my opinion, this insight can bring about a not inconsiderable shift in the understanding of the concept of nature, especially of the concept of natura pura. Away from the notion of an abstract minimal construct as the result of a radical grace subtraction, the concept of nature leads instead to a creation theology filled inside into the meaningfulness of human nature. Thus, Already in the concept of all human nature, which according to Maximus, insofar as they are nature, are natural syntheses, it can be made comprehensible how there's a natural readiness to participate in the nature of Jesus Christ through grace, without having to refer to supposedly inherent finality, which at least in its conception is defined to be outside nature itself, the supernatural, the second line of thought, nature in the light of the Christology of the Third Council of Constantinople. With the Third Council of Constantinople, 680 to 681, the Chalcedonian dogma of the hypostatic union receives a decisive elaboration. According to the Council, the union of the divine and human natures in Jesus Christ mean that the human efficacy and the divine efficacy join up mutually. In Greek, there's this famous word, sin trekain, to walk together, to run together. It's um, in Denzinger Hünemann 558. In uh, the same council uh, in Denzinger 556 had stated, but we proclaim equally two natural volitions or wills in Christ and two natural principles of action which undergo no divisions, no change, no partition, no confusion. You hear the reprisal of Chalcedon in accordance with the teaching of the Holy Fathers. And the two natural wills, not in opposition, as the impious heretic said, far from it, but his human will will be following and not resisting or struggling, rather in fact subject to his divine and all-powerful will. For in the same way that his all-holy and blameless animate flesh was not destroyed in being made divine, but remained in its own limit and category, so his human will as well, was not destroyed, but being made divine, but rather was preserved. End of quotation. Both natural wills and principles of action in such a way that Christ's operations are the fruit of a constant interaction of both natures, not a simple letting happen on the part of the human nature or mere passivity with respect to the divine nature. The latter, in fact, would only be a reiteration of monophysism. Human and divine nature in Christ cannot be used for a breakdown into activity and passivity when it comes to the analysis of Christ's actions. Let's once more hear the counsel. For he the, he, the Son of God, by his incarnation, has united himself, as it were, with every man. He did his work with human hands, with human thought, with human mind, acted with human will, and loved with human heart. 455 in Denzinger. It was again Maximus Confessor, now very close to 
the Third Council of Constantinople some 30, 40 years before, who already in the seventh century had made it clear that God in the activity and expression of the will of the human nature of Jesus Christ revealed the radic radical realization of his project to involve human beings in the finalization of the demonization of human beings and the whole cosmos. Long before, the theology of especially the Greek fathers had already worked out that the true meaning of human existence consists in nothing else than in the divinization of, of man, of human beings. That is a dynamic coming together of the creating and the created being. It must now be expressly noted as the statement of the Third Council of Constantinople declared with regard to the person of Jesus Christ, that the contribution of Christ's human nature to the divine project, the divine mission to partner with human beings in Jesus Christ, cannot be considered at any single moment as insignificant or secondary, certainly not as a non-execution of human activity in order to leave space for divine activity. From two sides now, it can be made clear once again that in this context, the con concept of human nature receives an upgrading, which in any case forbids to relegate it as a pre-personal substrate to the corner of meaninglessness. On the one hand, it has become clear from the text cited above that the project of the of demonization of the human being as the ultimate foundation of human longing cannot simply be regarded as set with its original situation. This project grows in the dynamic of divine grace in cooperation with human will and human action. It is precisely in order to be able to explain that divinization of man, in fact, means the surpassing of one's own natural being itself qua fulfillment of all human longing. It makes sense to work out that is that this is a result of the convergence of grace given to human beings with human beings' essential will and activity. And it does not concern human nature as such and in its origin. The latter would be, in my opinion, too close to a pantheistic conception of the interrelation of the divine and human beings. Once again, however, it should be emphasized that this situation of origin is not to be equated with pure passivity on the human side, rather with receptivity or closer to the council's wording with submission. On the other hand, the Third Council of Constantinople helps to focus more clearly on the dynamic character of the term longing, of the term desire which became so important for Henri de Libac, which may have been sidelined in the enthusiasm for one of the central rediscoveries of Christian transcendental philosophy in the 20th century. It is true that the reconsideration of the conditions of the possibility of human action and the recognition of it has rightly drawn attention to the importance of the transcendental implications that bridge the gap between the subjectively performed human acts and the whole of it, the objectively signifying to which each human act directly refers by means of a pre-apprehension, 
by means of a Vorgriff, I think at this point the German word Vorgriff seems indeed to be the fittest, applied specifically to the act of will, the, the act of desire, as it seems that Henri de Libac did, this results in a kind of coincidence of human will and its final cause, aimed at by means of this Vorgriff, by means of this anticipation or pre-apprehension. However, it appears important at this time not to lose sight of the actual meaning of the act of will or of desire, of desire, as a dynamic process. The emphasis when we speak of an act of will rests on a concept connected to different human faculties, intellect, memory, feelings, etc., which take place in man as soon as the human being, his or her desire towards a specific object of his choice forms with the aim of reaching a decision towards it, to take it or to leave it. Undoubtedly, there are forms of human desire that are inherent in the human being in the form of basic needs. Maximus Confessor, for example, refers these to human primordial faculty in contrast to object-specific desires. Those primordial basic needs are could be maybe addressed as the instance of wanting wanting or a mere capacity to want to will to be distinguished from wanting something wanting something particular we can see this with children even very little ones they are most willfully expressing that they have a will even though that will is not necessarily object focused from this point of view it seems appropriate speaking in terms of transcendental philosophy to refer to the presence of a principle of perfection through the submission to otherness to be integrated into one's own being as a given in human nature when it comes to listing the conditions for the emergence of human longing, of human desire. However, it seems far more important to keep alive the insight that human desire, as soon as it is directed towards the transcendent, the supernatural, towards God, is graciously guided and supported in the realization of itself. In other words, the desire for God arises with the process of human will in the encounter with divine grace. Only the broad horizon of the dynamic, not statically resolvable interaction between, the di between divine grace and human will, we are able to explain certain basic concepts of the doctrine of grace, such, for instance, as the Augustinian distinction between adjutorium sine qua non and adjutorium quo. This raises the legitimate question of whether the formulation natural desire, le désir naturel, the attributive position of the adjective natural in relation to desire, does it not promote an essentialist fixation where in reality a dynamic cooperation between human nature and the divine nature should be articulated? Natural longing for the supernatural rightly points to the possibility of the human will to actively long to be surpassed beyond its own limits but through the one-sidedness of the formulation loses sight of the fact that this longing itself as soon as it as it occurs cannot be attributed to human subjectivity alone 
But as the Second Synod of Orange formulates it, its existence is grounded on an interplay with the grace preceding its manifestation. So here, a short quote from the Synod of Orange. If anyone says that God has mercy upon us when, apart from his grace, we believe, we will, we desire, we strive, labor, pray, watch, study, seek, ask, or not, but does not confess that it is by the infusion and inspiration of the Holy Spirit within us that we have the faith, the will, or the strength to do all these things as we ought. Or if anyone makes the assistance of grace depend on the humility, obedience of man, and does not agree that it is a gift of grace itself, that we are obedient and humble, he contradicts the apostle who says, what have you that you did not receive? End of quotation. Conclusive remarks. We have been able to trace how in patristics the determination of the relationship between grace and nature is clearly derived from a theological, more precisely from a Christological core. In reality, the determination of the relationship proves to be the apex in which the speech of God in himself, the immanent trinity, turns into the speech of God for us the economic trinity. I think it has also become clear that the natura pura concept, not to be found in patristic times, needs not necessarily to be considered unpatristic or even as sometimes Father Rilibach at least stated for our times that this concept would be harmful. I don't think we need to claim that. Is this concept also, as occasionally argued, necessary in order to maintain the gratuitous character of grace? In my opinion, caution is called for here as well. Insofar as the term nature is closely related to the phenomenological appearance of the created being resulting from the cre creational act, Natura Pura insinuates a determinable demarcation between the sphere of divine grace with respect to human activity and with respect to the human existential being, if you wish. This demarcation is accessible to human reason on the level of a fundamental distinction between the sole creator and everything created. And in this sense, we may argue that the distinction is also necessary to state, but no longer on the level of the designation of a constitutive natura pura per se, necessarily characterizing human beings as an anthropological category. Here, in my view, the, the concept of natura pura would be overstated. Thank you very much. <laughs>